God is good. He is, right? I heard a couple of you believe that. Praise God. Thank you for such a wonderful worship. It is a privilege to be among brothers and sisters united by Christ and to look into His Word. If you are um, prepared today, please open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. We'll read first chapter together, and I want to encourage you as you open your Bibles to study along with the preacher. Read the First Thessalonians at home. It would prepare you greatly, and I would want to challenge you, you know, many preachers challenge the uh, uh, audience and congregation to read it weekly. Read it at least once a week. Better of all, read it every day. If you read every day, the whole Thessalonians, which is five chapters, 15 minutes for an educated person, then uh, you would pretty much know it in a month by heart. So it would benefit the preacher, it benefit you greatly, so I would challenge you to do so. So if you are in First Thessalonians, let's read together. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, Grace to you in peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith, your labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and the Father. Knowing, brethren, beloved by God, His choice of you. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in the power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of man we proved to be among you for your sake. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers, Macedonia and Anachia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything, for they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God, and to wait from his son, for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for a privilege to look into your word and to be encouraged by you as the word intended to do so. May your spirit be with us and may he enlighten our hearts, open our minds to believe and prepare our will to follow. We praise you, Father, in Christ's name, amen. Now, last time we introduced the book, and if you remember, there are two main points that the book, or two main themes that the point and the book addresses. Number one is the gospel, the beginning of your life, the beginning of your following Jesus. This is the reality that always supposed to be in before our eyes. You always have to look back and see this is how it started. And the second great reality in the theme of the first Thessalonians and the second Thessalonians is that almost in every chapter, he's talking about the coming of Jesus Christ, his return. 
first and second coming. But I want to point out to you that between those realities, us, our life, and Paul, writing this letter, he wants to encourage believers to keep on going in their faith, in their love, in their hope, and be active in their life. I just want to give you a couple of verses so that to back that statement up, that in those, between those reality, our life, that Jesus want and expects us to live, and he wants us to live and excel more. In Thessalonians, a great church, a model church, was encouraged to do so. Chapter 4, verse 1. Just flip the page and says, Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, then you excel still more. Still more. Thessalonian church was an exemplary church, but it was not a perfect church. And it was need to be encouraged to go even more beyond what they're doing. If you scroll down to chapter 4, verse 10, the same phrase appears still more appear, uh, relating to the love of the brethren. In verse 1, he's talking about holiness. Personal holiness has to increase. And verse 10 is encouraging to love the brethren even more. For indeed, you do practice it, the love of another, all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. And that is our challenge today. As you believe in Jesus and you see his life and work of, on the cross that works for you, and that you expect Jesus, who is coming again, to bring the eternal life, you're encouraged to live a holy life full of love to the brethren and to the world. So that's a little bit of back, stepping back. But this morning, my intention to bring to you a message, the assurance of election. Assurance of election. I'll give you a joke approved by Sproul. He told this joke, so it must be sanctified. When we talk about election, we talk about two different camps, Armenians and colonists. So Armenian Calvinists, they're sitting in trenches in World War I, and they are, the bullets flying all over the place, and Armenians is really, really worried about his life, and Calvinists is just like, yeah, I'm not worried. There's a bullet with my name on it, no problem, God predestined it. And the Armenian guy, he said, well, I'm not worried about that bullet. I'm worried about the rest of the bullets that says to whom it might concern. <laughs> There's a great debate about the election predestination. Now, my job is not to stir up the pot between the camps. My job is to look at the scripture. And I would not preach about the election unless the election would be in the text. And it is in the text. And I cannot skip it. And I don't think when Paul mentioned the election in verse 4, which is our text, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you, I don't think he wants us to just come in passing just to throw this idea of election just, you know, so it's there. He wants us to understand that election is a very encouraging doctrine. And in fact, the text from 5 to 10 builds up the proof of your election. The assurance of your election is in verses 6 to 10. This is why Paul is so happy for the church. This is Paul so thankful for the church. Of course, he's thankful in verse 3 that they are doing really good in their faith and their love and steadfastness of hope. 
and that they are in the presence of God the Father. But he said, we all know that in the light of your election. And verse 4, 5 starts with 4, meaning the reason why we know that you are elect are in the following, following context. Now, Paul is very convinced about something here. He said, knowing. He uses this word, knowing. It's not like experiential and knowing. Like, hey, I taste this food and I know it's good. He knows it like you know five times five. It's 25. I know the fact that you are elect. The question is, how in the world Paul would know that they are elect? We're struggling with the question whether I am elect or not. Would you come to your brother preaching the gospel to them, seeing their conversion, seeing the reception of the word of God, seeing the fruit of the Holy Spirit, and tell them, I know the choice of God about you, brethren, beloved by God. So, whether we could do that to the brothers, but I hope you know and are sure about your own election. Now, how do we know that? How do we know that? Let me give you just three simple points. And they are in your bulletin, election. And the proof of election is really, an assurance of your election that you're elected by God, is really in two simple things. The way how you receive the gospel and the way how you live your life. The way how this gospel changed your life. These are the proofs of your testimony. This is the pure, pure proof of your election by God. You cannot look back eternally past and see in the book of life, but all you could see and believe the gospel, and talking about the faith, reception of the word, faith, and the continuing going in that faith proves that you are elect. I like how Willem Hendrickson in his commentary, he said, in the final analysis, this quote is in your, in your, uh, at the bottom of your notes. In the final analysis, the reason for the joy and gratitude which fills the hearts of the missionaries is the fact that they know that the members of the Thessalonian church are God's chosen one. Paul spent just three weeks, perhaps five weeks at the most, and then he was kicked out together with his friends from Thessalonica. It passed only about the year. He went to Athens. He sent Timothy and said, go check on them. And he went back to, he went further to Corinth. And he awaited in Corinth that Timothy would come with the good news or bad news about Thessalonians, how they're doing in their faith. And when Timothy comes in to Corinth, he was encouraging Paul, they're doing really good. Paul writes this to a young church full of conviction that they are chosen by God. Now, when I first met the doctrine of election, predestination, it did two things for me. It greatly disappointed me, greatly disappointed me, because I never saw the word in the Bible. I, I skipped, I read Bible many times before that, but I never saw the word election in it, predestination or, or anything in that sort, nada. And I was just really surprised and upset with myself. How in the world, I'm reading the Bible, I didn't even see the word. But the second thing was upsetting to me is that it took away all my pride in coming into the Lord by myself. 
I have to realize that, wow, it is He who loved me first. It is He who wrote my name before the foundation of the world. And it is like many people who sing, for instance, song and never think about the words. Like we're saying amazing grace, right? How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And if you come to your brother who sings next to you and you ask him, so are you a wretch? Immediately, a person would be on offense. Like, what do you mean, a wretch? Well, you just sang it, right? This is what you believe, that you are a wretch. That you are really nothing before God and God that he elected you and chose you. Same thing with the doctrine of election. We could believe it and we could accept it as the doctrine of the Bible. When it come, touches you, it might irritate you. But as I said, that's not my desire, desire for today. So our election, two things about election. Verse four is clearly, he says, his choice of you. His choice of you. He chose you. But there's a word before that, brethren beloved by God. And I believe that election, when you think about election, easy to think about election in two aspects. Your privilege to be loved by God and your responsibility to live a godly life. You've been called, elected, selected by God without your approval, by God himself to be those things, to be part of God's loving family and have responsibility. So election means privileges. Election is from eternity. You got this privilege, as Ephesians 1, 4, and 5 says, before the foundation of the world where you were not there, you got the privilege to be part of God's family. Election is unconditional. You have not been there to influence the God's choice. First, 1 Corinthians 1, 27 says, God chose foolish things of the word to shame the wise. In 1 Corinthians 4, 7, he says, for who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? Everything that you have received, everything that you must show for in yourself, it was given to you by God. So in the beginning, you had nothing. Romans 9, 11 tells us that for the, though the twins, Jacob and Asa, were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's promise according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Election is eternal, election is unconditional, election is effectual. It's not just that God calls you by name. We don't call people by name. Say, hey, Bill. And he would say, what? And so nothing. I just want to call your name. Your mom doesn't call you just like, hey, Paul, come over. And you come over, what do you want? Nothing. Election, calling always has a purpose. You call into the family, and God said that you are beloved. You have been loved by God before the foundation of the world. But the second point of election is that you have a purpose, and you have responsibility. And there's a two things that goes with election that you are called to be holy, called to be holy, and called to be like Christ. Never just purposeless. They always come together. You're beloved by God. Why? So that you be like beloved son. And Ephesians 1, 4 says, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And if you stop there, that would be kind of first point. You've been privileged. You've been called by name. God himself calls you. 
But then there's a purpose that we would be holy and blameless before him. Those, those two go together. Romans 8, 29 says that we're called to be like Christ. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become confirmed to the image of his son, so that he would be firstborn among many brethren. Now, let me just bring those two together by illustration. How many of you are first born here? Yeah, a couple of you raised the hand. I'm first born. Do you know that first born has privilege to be born first? I mean, it doesn't, they didn't influence it in any way. They didn't choose to be first. But in Jewish and Asian culture, the firstborn has double inheritance. Double inheritance. Because you're firstborn, you have twice of the estate just because you've been born. Now, you didn't do a thing yet, but simply because you're born first, there was a lot to you from the beginning, and everybody knew that you would have double portion. And that is great. And that is a privilege to be firstborn. You're born, and by the time you realize that you will have all these privileges, you learn about your responsibilities. Now, if you're first born in a family, you know all those responsibilities. You take care of the family, the kids that goes after, you, you wash the dishes more, you, you, you take care of your mother and father, and so the responsibility is immense. Not only that you have a double portion, you have double responsibility. And so when we think about election by God, you've been elected, selected for the special purpose to be loved by God, but also represent His nature to the world. And so that is why Paul says, listen, this is super, super important. You have to realize that. And this doctrine will encourage you when the day go, goes really bad, when a couple of months goes really, really bad, and you worry about a lot of stuff, look back at the election of God. Look at those promises. They're not just words in the Bible. There are powerful words that encourage our hearts that we are elected by God for special purposes. And this election does not wear off. It does not wear off as you go along. You buy a new car, it's shiny, it's, it's beautiful, but in 10 years in, under California sun, the paint wears off. And it's not new anymore. Election doesn't wear off. You're so excited in the beginning about election and then you start doubting. No, it should increase. Increase. But how do we know that we elect it? Paul brings the example of Thessalonians and he said, I know that you're elected by God because I see your faith. The way how you receive the word, the reception of the gospel was the proven factor that you receive it with faith. Point number one. And we'll look at four things. It's basically in verse five. Paul says, for the gospel did not come to you in words only, but also in the power and in the spirit and with full convictions, just as you know what kind of man we proved to be among you for your sake. And verse 6 says, you also became imitators of God and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation and affliction and with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Four things I want to bring under the reception of the gospel. When the gospel comes to you and you truly receive these four things always there. First of all, gospel always comes in words. 
always come with words. Now, we could preach the gospel in the pantomima, but people would not get it. We could preach the gospel through the movies, but the world would not get it. We could preach the gospel through the songs. You could listen to your radio station, Christian radio station, with songs in it. But if it's not clearly presented in words, in preaching, in proclamation, then the world will not believe. Now, Paul says the gospel did not come to you. The words did not come to you. The gospel always comes with words, always with a clear presentation, and always is important. But let me suggest to you that although gospel comes with words, gospel comes, must come in power. Now, many things that comes to your mailbox with words, right? I often get some kind of uh, weird email at my mailbox that some Nigerian prince gave me inheritance. Very clear, very clear. I know what they're saying. It's clear proclamation of whatever good news they say, but I don't believe it. So preaching the gospel with words only, and Paul's argument says that it didn't come with words only. It didn't come with words. It has to come with words, but it didn't come. The clear presentation of the gospel, it's not enough. Just to explain to the brain of people, to their understanding and clarify things, it's important, but it's not enough. It's not going to convince them because they're not sure whether it's true or not. And the second point, how gospel came to you and how you received it, is that first, it came with words. Second, it didn't come with words only, but with what? In power. In power. Now, if you remember how the word came in to the Thessalonians, Paul says, our gospel. Our gospel. Paul was so convinced about the gospel that he said, our gospel. My gospel came to you in the flesh, in me. But it Paul didn't do any miracles. He did in Philippi, Philippi miracles, but not in Thessalonica, nothing. So the power there was not experienced through the signs and visions and, and healing and resurrection. What the power that Paul is talking about? And Paul is talking about the power that could crush the unbelief of the Thessalonians. You know, this wall of unbelief and mistrust, it was blown away by the power of the word of the gospel. And this power always, always associating with the Holy Spirit, because the third thing that Paul mentions here in verse 5, that is come with the power in, in the Holy Spirit. He's kind of rushing for quickly, say, well, the power equals the Holy Spirit. It was a spiritual dynamite, we could say, that blown away the unbelief and created a new life. And the message of the gospel there is enough power to demolish strongholds of human pride, to demolish the faith and the trust to the idolatry. There's enough power to demolish all the allegiance to any other lords. And it's enough power to create a new heart. Now, if you believer, you know what I'm talking about. Because when you heard the gospel, when you didn't believe a thing, and all of a sudden, the power of the Holy Spirit came upon you and opened the door that the Word could do its work and regenerate you and give you life. You know what I'm talking about. Gospel is a spiritual, powerful thing. Paul says in Romans 1.16 that the gospel, we're not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power 
that leads to salvation, everyone who believes. And it doesn't matter who you are, whether you're Greek or Jew, the power to salvation. The power in the gospel is always goes with direct association with the Holy Spirit. If there is no power, the Holy Spirit does not work. The gospel is spiritual. It must come in spirit of God. Romans 1.4 says, Who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. Romans 59, in the power of sign and wonder, in the power of the Spirit, so that from Jerusalem and around about as far as Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. 2 Timothy 1.7, for God has not given us spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Have you experienced the power of the gospel, the presence of the Holy Spirit? The reason why the message was so powerful was not in the words of Paul or his clarity, so to speak, or his persuasion, but was empowered by God. Something miraculous happened that didn't happen in many other places. When Paul opened his mouth for three Sabbaths and reasoned that Jesus is the Messiah, people came to Christ. See, they came to Christ because they were elected. The preaching goes there by the sovereign power and hand of God. He redirected Paul's mission to go to Thessalonica. He redirected. He empowered the message of Apostle Paul. Something extraordinary happened. Powerful presentation and powerful reception of the word comes from the spirit. It was not an impersonal force. It was a force of the Holy Spirit. The person himself came in with the gospel. And this person was the third person of the Trinity. The fourth thing, Paul says, in your reception, this is what you experience. You experience that the gospel came in words, but not only in words with power, with the presence of the Holy Spirit, but also when we spoke, we were very convinced of what we're talking about. We were not just mumbling around there about some Jesus who could might be change your life. It was bold proclamation. Just imagine you come to Thessalonica. Thessalonica was in view of Mount Olympus. You know what happened in Mount Olympus? Twelve deities. All the Greek mythologies. They're there. Zeus, Aphrodite, and so on. And they were living in the visible light of their idols or their gods. And to preach against those gods and to say, those are idols. Trash them. Those are nothing. Those are garbage. Jesus is the one who saves. That takes some boldness. He doesn't come to a suggestion, you know what? You know, there might be a better alternative for you. You're suffering right now, right? No, Paul says, well, I'm fully convinced. You know when You cannot preach anything. You cannot sell anything if you're not convinced. Can you sell anything if you're not convinced? If you're selling a, a, a bad car, can you really sell it like a good car? I mean, you could be a, bad, a really, really good liar. Or can you sell something that you don't have? Like you don't use it by yourself. Like recently I joined a club where, you know, they train a little bit physically because I, I got so overweight and stuff. And so I need to get boost from people. But I would never follow the instructor if he would be overweight. It's kind of hard. 
Like he could preach to me all he wants. And I don't follow the instructor who does not do the same thing and same exercise that I do. He would say, well, that's for you, but for me it's different. Paul says, I have this, it is our gospel. It is our gospel that we brought to you. My conviction, and I want that to be your gospel. Your convictions. Romans 4, 21 proves this point, and he says, and being fully assured that what God has promised, he was able also to perform. The assurance of Paul was not in that he knew gospel well, that he believed it, that God is able to deliver the message. And what he promised to them, he promised that if you leave these idols and believe in the true and living God, he's a genuine, he's not fake, God will save you from the wrath to come. I know that. I experienced that. I went through that. I believe this God who's talking about. Every time when we preach the gospel, we must, must preach it with clear presentation. But it must be wrapped up with the power of the Holy Spirit. That means a lot of prayer. And it should be coming with conviction that it is yours. Now, the Thessalonians in verse 6 says, they become imitators because they have received the word. They have received the word. They've been able to receive the word because God chose them. He sent Paul. He opened their hearts. He made it clear. This kind of reception of the gospel message, if you experience that, proves that you're elected. If you have faith in Christ, the only believers who are predestined before the foundation of the world ha can't have that type of faith. So assurance of election is confirmed by your reception of the gospel. And you have to check, how did you receive it? Was it clear? Do you understand what the gospel is? Was it powerful that able to change your perspective on life and on you and on God? And if you haven't, you have a chance. You have a chance today to receive the word in the same passion. The third point is the redirection of life. This is where we see that the reception of the message was, was proved also by that the life changed. Your life changed, radically changed. It shifted. It was radical redirection of your personal opinions and life direction. This is the second evidence that plays in assurance of our election for real experience of your life change. If you see your life is so struggling that you love the same sins like you did before, that you lose your passion for Jesus, that you're not loving your brothers, that you really don't believe, that you don't want to go to church and spend time with people, there's a question. Of course there's a question about your assurance. If you don't read his word, a love letter from him, how can you say that you love him? Paul says, this has radically redirected your life. First of all, you became imitators of us. And number two, second, is that you became an example for others. And I hope this change of life is a pattern of your life. You became an imitator of someone who looked like Jesus. And then you became an example for someone who wants to be like Jesus. Paul says, imitators. This is the change. Before you imitated the idols, now you imitated me and all of the Lord. 
The word imitators come from Greek word mimetai, mimicking. You mimic it. You know, kids sometimes mimicking their parents. They wear their shoes, they play mom and dad, and so on. Another word for that in our language would be acting. Hollywood picks up this idea really well and make billions on that. They're acting. They're showing that they're crying. They're showing that they're laughing. But that mimicking is very superficial because it's just an expression of your faith. You don't feel, you might not feel nothing or definitely don't feel as if it happened in reality. But when Paul says you become an imitators of us, he said that deeply in your heart, you desire what we desire. And Paul is not ashamed to call, him, call people to imitate his life. You notice that? 1 Corinthians 4, 16, he said, I exhort you, be imitators of me. Wow. That's a strong and bold proclamation. 1 Corinthians 11, 1, he says, be imitators of me just as I also of Christ. Verse 6 in Thessalonians, he says, you have become imitators of us and of the Lord. And I used to think, the thought crossed my mind before, that Paul is a really proud guy. I mean, how in the world you could say boldly, hey, follow me. But he would be proud if he would not say that as I follow the Lord. And in Thessalonians church, he said, well, follow me, imitators of me and of the Lord. You should only follow me as far as I follow Christ. That's it. That's it. And I hope that we experience this, that before your children, before your neighbors, before your coworkers, those who do not know Christ yet, that they see you, that you're imitating someone, that you're following someone, that you're changing into someone's image, that you're not self-made men by yourself with your own convictions, that you have borrowed your conviction from Jesus and you follow him, that you start looking like him. When people are mimicking people or, or copycatting people, they change in their image. They dress like them, they have hair like them, they speak like them, they think like them. That's what Paul says, that's what you become. That's how radically you change. You drop all of your stuff and start following us like we follow Jesus. And there's two things, aspect that he's amazing change happened. This change happened as they received the word in the midst of tribulation and with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Midst of tribulation and joy of the Holy Spirit. You know, when I think that Paul wrote this to Thessalonians, I think that he didn't have in mind American culture. Because we say, he re, you receive, you become imitators within the tribulation that came, the word came with the tribulation. It's not a pretty exciting thing. Tribulation mentioned 45 times in the New Testament, agony, anguish, problems. And this is a common experience when the word comes to you. You become a persecuted person. If, if the word really changes you and you become imitated of Jesus, the world would hate you at one time or another. And this idea of experience the tribulation and suffering and persecution is not foreign to Christianity. Jesus promised tribulation. He said, in this word, you will have tribulations. He said, there's going to be divisions. You will be divided. Don't think I came to bring peace, but I came to bring sword. 
Jesus destined us for trials. He said that we should come to the kingdom of heaven through much tribulations. In Thessalonians 3.3, says, No one should be disturbed by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. Paul says, you received the word, and you have changed with much tribulation. Immediately, you became an opposition. People opposed you. And you have become imitators of us and of the churches. If you look in chapter 2, we'll go further later on, that they, that's a common experience of churches in Judea and everywhere else. But the paradox is that the sufferings never come just by sufferings. They come always combined with another thing, with the Holy Spirit and the joy of the Holy Spirit. Always. This paradox of experience shine along the pathway of mortars and saints of Christ. Every time people proclaim boldly whom they follow, the world hates and there becomes a persecution. If you remember in Acts 5, Peter and disciples, after being flogged, in order not to speak the name of Jesus anymore, they went on their way from the presence of the consul, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. It's kind of hard for us, American people, who are comforted with joys of the world, to suffer. And I would say that's why we don't receive the word, because it's going to bring sufferings. For the unbeliever, receiving the word meaning that they would start being persecuted. For believers, meaning that you have to change. Have you experienced this tension when your friend or your brother have sinned and you come to him or your child and you need to talk to him about the sin? Have you felt the tension that when you're going to bring this truth, that it's going to bring the separation between you, that you bring sufferings in his life that he needs to change and admit that he's sinning. But with that, with admission, with exception of the word comes the joy of the Holy Spirit. In chapter 2, 13, he says, For this reason we also constantly thank God that we, that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what is really is the word of God which also perform its works in you who believe. When you receive the gospel, gospel will come most likely with the sufferings and the joy combined. The second thing that they become an example, uh, that, that, that they change their life and that they become an example. Example of Apostle Paul. They immediately adopted his style of life, preaching, sharing the gospel. When they received the gospel, the Thessalonian church had not thought of keeping it to, to themselves, but word and life, by word and life, they made it known to others. From the beginning, they became functioning like missionaries. Right away. They received the gospel with joy and tribulation and say, well, we're going to follow Paul, and in that sense, they become an example for everyone. Wow, you've just been believers for so and so long, and now you follow and become a missionary? But that's how gospel changes your perspective. It changes you from getting to yourself, but giving 
When you understand how much you get, God, when you understand what God has done for you before the foundation of the world, and that he brought the gospel to you, you become a sharer of the gospel. And become an example of two things. Proclamation of proclamation of the gospel and also of their holy life. They start spreading their faith. The word of the Lord has sounded forth from you. Your faith toward God has sounded forth from you. The word became their faith. And they start preaching their faith. People start talking about them everywhere they went. And when the life changes you, the reputation goes much farther often than your words. I don't know if you heard the story about Nicky Cruz. He was a notorious gangster. By age 16, he became a member of Brooklyn street gang named as Mao Mouse. Within six months, he became their president. Cruz fearlessly ruled in the streets as a war lord. Everybody afraid of him. The government did not know what to do with him. In fact, when he was arrested one time, the court ordered psychiatrists pronounce at Nikki's fate. He said, you're headed to prison, the electric chair, and hell. For sometimes no authority could figure out how to reach Cruz until he met a skinny street preacher named David Wilkinson. And he preached to him several on several occasions, and he irritated Nikki. He irritated. He was very angry. He was beaten by his mom and, and dad when he was growing up. His mom was a witch. And he said, I enjoyed beating up people because it gave me satisfaction. I want them to feel what I felt. I don't know if it's true, but this is in his testimony that when David Wilkinson preached the gospel to him, he threatened to kill him. He said, next time I see you, I'm going to deal with you. And David said, you could cut me to a thousand pieces and spread it across the, the town. But every piece would scream, I love you. And this relentless love was proof of the love of Jesus brought Nikki to Christ. Interesting fact, only in four years, this relentless, violent man became a missionary. That's an example. When Paul says you become an example, he uses this word of scars. When people whipping animals or people, there are scars. That's an example, or that's the sticking memory of what it looks like. Sometimes when you put the concrete in your, in your, you know, if you've seen people do the handprint in the concrete, and you cannot change that anymore, so you take it, and in a couple of hours it just sticks, and that's it, it's forever. That's the, that's the example. That's the scar, that's the mark. You know, some people do the marks in the toilet rooms, right? They just hear, here was Wasya and hope to be remembered by this, that he was there. 
make an inscription. We are called to make a dent and become an example of what Christ's suffering looked like. When we preach the gospel, we're preaching the imprinted wounds on the hands of Christ. Remember Thomas, he said to the disciples when they said, we have seen the Lord, but he said to them, unless I see his hands, the imprint of the nails, and put my finger in the place of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. Thessalonian church became an example of sufferer church that preached the gospel to others no matter what because they have been elected by God for the purpose. And as they preached, their faith went forth in a very interesting way. Verse 9 and 10, it says how. Verse 8 says that how far it went. It sounded for everywhere, Macedonia, Achaia, basically the whole Greece, the, the north and south of Greece, everywhere, even beyond the Greece it went for. But the example of the Thessalonians of how they preach and how they change, it was their personal and holy life. They spread their faith. And people start gossiping about them. You know, there's a holy gossip. There's a bad gossip. There's a holy gossip. The bad gossip and sinful gossip, when you come and say about someone something that you shouldn't or it's not your problem, and you're just talking about him. But the good gossip is someone talking about your good change, and you start spreading. So in a sense, unbelievers, they start gossiping with holy gossip about the change that Jesus brought into their lives. And it's interesting thing that with all our powerful mass information and technology. The emphasis on the spreading the gospel is by your preaching and personal example. You know, we could have radio program, TV program, books, internet, broadcasting, podcast, whatever you want, but if you don't change your life and follow Christ, and if people would not notice that, and say, well, I noticed that that man, he was an idolater, now he loves Jesus. Nothing would come so powerful as that. If people would come to Christ, it's not because of the gadgets or subscription or computers, but simply through opening our mouth and spreading the word and admitting that our life has been changed. Does this happening to us? Is it happening to us? Are we changed? Look what they changed in. Changing three things. They have turned to God from idols. They start serving and living in true God and waiting for the Son. They turn to God. Every time when you turn from idols, first thing you start noticing God. You might not notice your idols that you serve, but you notice God. He is just burst into your scene and say, I am the true, a real, genuine, the one who could deliver and forgive you. Not like those idols dead. I'm living. I'm active. They're visible and touchable, but I'm invisible, but I'm real, genuine. 
The gospel brought the power to liberate them from these dead idols. As I said, it was a pretty strong and bold message to say, hey, Zeus has no power over you. You have to drop him. He has nothing to do with your salvation. He can't deliver you from the God who actually comes with anger and wrath upon every unbeliever. And they turn. They drop their idols. And they turn to serve living in a true God who can deliver them. And the third thing in that what they change, they become eagerly expecting Jesus' return. There was active waiting. It's not like waiting in your doctor's appointment room when you sit and wait and you pick your phone and so okay, maybe I should look at my Instagram. Maybe I should call a friend. You're just waiting for that thing to come. When we wait Jesus like they did wait at Jesus, they waited actively, preaching his word and saying that he's coming with wrath. And you must turn away also. That there's a subtle indignation after a century of idolatry, serving rocks and woods, instead of living God, God comes in, who gave grace in his son with anger if you don't return to him. Now, that life is impossible if you're not really sure if you are saved and elected. That life of bold proclamation, of changed life, it's, it's really impossible if you're always doubting, were I saved? Was I elected by God? Is his choice secure? But if you accept that, election is a joyful doctrine. If you embrace it. Again, the quote from Wilkins uh, Hendrickson says, in the final analysis, the reason for the joy and gratitude which fills the hearts of the missionaries is the fact that they know that the members of the Thessalonian church are God's chosen one. Father, bless us, Lord, as we go. Thank you for your word. May you encourage us to live in the light of your doctrines. We don't invent doctrines. We read about them. We don't come to you by our own will only, but because of you brought us in. And oh, what a joyful realization that we freely chose you because you have chose us. And help us, Lord, not just to dwell on how blessed we are to be chose, chosen, but what does that mean? And what's the responsibility that we carry with that doctrine? May you bless us, Lord, in Christ's name we pray. Amen.